Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today with our national lead. We are 74 days out from an unprecedented presidential election happening in the middle of a deadly pandemic with the President of the United States yet again this afternoon railing against vote by mail, a process, we should point out, that has been part of this nation's history since the U.S. Civil War. Today, President Trump, with zero evidence, claimed that the election will be an embarrassment and a catastrophe because of vote by mail, while his postmaster general was elsewhere stating the exact opposite in congressional testimony. As we head into the election season, I want to assure this committee and the American public that the Postal Service is fully capable and committed to delivering the nation's election mail securely and on time. This sacred duty is my number one priority. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, a Trump donor, attempted to calm fears over ballots being delayed in the mail, and he stood by the vote-by-mail process, which has been used safely by millions of Americans, by him, not to mention at least six members of the Trump cabinet, the Trump press secretary, the vice president of the United States, and in this video released by the Trump campaign to encourage Republicans to vote by mail by the president himself. DeJoy testified today that he has committed to processing all mail-in ballots as first-class mail, promising that 95% of ballots would be delivered in one to three days. DeJoy earlier this week had announced that he would pause changes to the postal service that he was making to avoid, quote, even the appearance of any impact on election mail. But these are photos of mail sorting machines that were already removed before DeJoy's reversal. Today, DeJoy said there are no plans to put those machines back in service. CNN's Pamela Brown uh, joins me now to talk about this. And and Pamela, DeJoy tried to make it clear uh, that the U.S. Postal Service is prepared to handle this massive volume, tens of millions of mail-in ballots, and that all Americans, he said, should be allowed to vote by mail. Right. Uh, Very early on in this virtual hearing today, Jake, uh, Louis DeJoy, the postmaster general, seemed to want to distance himself from President Trump, who you pointed out has railed against mail-in voting. voting, DeJoy, in contrast, assured lawmakers that American people should have faith in the system, that he is a supporter of mail-in voting, that it's something he does himself, and that it's something the American public should be able to do. Here's what he said during that hearing. I voted by mail for a number of years. The Postal Service will deliver every ballot and process every ballot in in, in time that it receives. I think the American public should be able to vote by mail and the Postal Service will, will support. And DeJoy also uh, made the case that election mail will be prioritized. And this is important because CNN had obtained documents, Jake, showing that the Postal Service wanted to make a change in election mail and wanted states to pay for first-class mail, which would be expensive, and a change from uh, years past, and so that election mail will be placed in with the rest of the mail, which would be um, processed more slowly. But today, uh, DeJoy made clear that that would not be happening, that in fact election mail uh, will be treated 
as first-class mail. And Pamela DeJoy was asked whether he had spoken with members of the administration, including President Trump, about any proposed changes. What, what did he have to say about that? Yeah, that's right. That's been one of the big questions from Democrats, whether President Trump uh, appointed him to be in this role to uh, sabotage the Postal Service in order to impact uh, election mail, mail-in voting. Uh, but in fact, DeJoy said today that he had not spoken with the president about the Postal Service um, outside of just a congratulatory meeting that they had recently. But he said he never talked to him about the changes, those controversial changes that um, the Postal Service was implementing. He also said he didn't talk to Mark Meadows, the president's chief of staff about these uh, changes as well. It was a little squishier when it comes to Treasury Secretary Mike uh, Mnuchin. He said that uh, he had talked to Mnuchin about the overall plan, but didn't get into the details of the changes he was making. All right, Pamela Brown, thank you so much. Joining me now to discuss Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois. He serves on the House Oversight Committee. He will be among those questioning Postmaster General DeJoy at the hearing on Monday. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. So DeJoy said today that uh, ballots are going to be prioritized as first-class mail and that no further changes will take place before Election Day. Uh, Take a listen uh, to part of what he said. There has been no changes in any policies with regard to election mail uh, 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 for the for the 2020 election. I want to assure this committee and the American public that the Postal Service is fully capable and committed to delivering the nation's election mail securely and on time. So, Congressman, based on what you heard today, are you satisfied that the Postal Service is doing all it can to facilitate this election? Absolutely not. The fact that he would not commit to reversing the changes Uh, reversing the damage that's already been done um, is testament to the fact that uh, we can't take him at his word fully. For instance, uh, there are hundreds of mail sorting machines that have been decommissioned. Some people even claim that some of them have been destroyed. We want to know where they are and whether he will commit to putting them back in place. Same with the blue mailboxes. Hundreds and hundreds have been removed in his very short tenure of just a couple months being Postmaster General. Again, he will not commit to putting those back. And with regard to election mail, um, you know, there was some policy change that was made. That's why your uh, reporter found that documentation. We'd like reassurance that the policy change was reversed. And not only the ballots will receive first class mail status, but the applicants for the ballots um, do as well, uh, which, as you know, most local election authorities uh, are required before any receive a ballot in the first place. Uh, you broke up a little bit. Just to clarify, you're saying not just the ballots uh, re- be first class, but you want the uh, applications for ballots uh, to receive uh, first class. Just a, you had a little glitch there. So let me ask you, DeJoy, insi- DeJoy insisted, insisted that mailboxes have been removed in past election years. Uh, He also said that none of the proposed post office closures were political in nature. Take a listen. I confirm post office closures was not a directive I gave. That That was around before I got it. There's a process to that. Uh, When I found out about it uh, and it it had the uh, reaction uh, that that we did, uh, I've I've suspended that until after the election. What's your response to that, Congressman? Well, then put the mailboxes back, put the mail sorting machines back. Um, And also, uh, very importantly, um, you know, changes were made with regard to overtime rules uh, such that service levels have not been restored, Jake. First class mail has been left on the dock floors, uh, on loading room floors, uh, things that never happened in the past. 
I have received 1,612 calls, emails, and letters from my constituents who are outraged. Not to vote has been interfered with or will likely be interfered with if changes persist. But uh, they're not receiving their medications. Uh, they haven't been receiving their payments and parcels or Social Security checks. I mean, this is uh, a devastating set of changes that have been made, and nobody's tolerating it. Obviously, uh, any of the slowdowns are horrible and need to be fixed. DeJoy did say in, in, in his testimony today that the changes that are being made in terms of um, post office uh, mailboxes being removed post and office, such uh, uh, are meant to improve the service uh, to the American people. And you know that it has happened in the past uh, that mailboxes have been removed. Sure. Um, you can ask my constituents whether they, whether they feel that service has improved. And on top of the fact that um, they're not going to say that it has improved, it's actually deteriorated rapidly. Uh, the president, you know, just a couple weeks ago, um, uh, given points for candor, told us what he's trying to do with the USPS, which is he's trying to monkey with mail-in voting uh, to try to um, uh, reduce it and um, to try to interfere with the upcoming election. So all that together uh, yields the conclusion that these reasons that uh, the postmaster has been, postmaster general has been giving, that he's trying to improve efficiency and trying to improve on-time performance are merely pretexts for what appear to be changes designed to help President Trump at the polls in November. And that is the underlying concern uh, that um, be the backdrop for the grilling that he's going to get on Monday from my committee. You've questioned DeJoy's appointment. You've questioned his qualifications. He, he said today that he's done massive transformational projects for Boeing, for Verizon. He touted his commitment to public service. He said he has a plan for the success of the Postal Service. Uh, you still concerned that he's not up to the job? Concerned that he's not up to the job? Yes, and um, I circulated there along with my colleague Katie Porter um, talking about the selection process in which he was appointed. It was highly irregular, Jake. Normally, the Board of Governors contracts with an outside consulting firm to find the best, um, uh, best qualified applicant and best qualified person to take over as Postmaster General to remove the politics from the situation. However, in this case, uh, Mr. DeJoy was actually pushed upon the Board of Governors uh, by the White House. He was not vetted by the outside consulting firm or search firm, and he did not even undergo a background check. And that's why one of the Board of Governors members, Mr. Williams, actually in part resigned because of that. And so we're going to be exploring that as well uh, with Mr. DeJoy on Monday. Now, I know that the Postal Service is a service, it's in the Constitution. It's not a business. Um, but DeJoy says that the post office needs to get its fiscal house in order, pointing out that the agency has lost $80 billion since 2007. Um, do you disagree with the idea that the Postal Service needs to make changes to help it, more, help it become more financially sustainable? No, I don't disagree with that. I think there need to be changes. For one, uh, there's a pre-funding mandate on the Postal Service instituted in 2006 
requiring them to pre-fund retiree health care benefits for 75 years, Jake. I was a small business person. I've never seen any similar mandate on any uh, company in the private or public sector. And so that has to be changed. And also the Postal Service obviously needs um, some other reforms to make sure that it's sustainable. But in the lead up to the election, Jake, uh, massive changes should not be made that would risk the election results and disenfranchise voters. That is one of the biggest fears driving so many of my constituents to contact me right now. All right, Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, Democrat of Illinois, thanks for your time, sir. We'll be watching the testimony and your questions on Monday. Thank you so much, Jake. It was once solid Trump country, but now some voters in a critical state are afraid the president is leaving them in the dust. And a new warning that the coronavirus death toll could explode yet again because some are not getting the point that large crowds and no masks are a really, really bad idea right now. Stay with us. In our Healthly Today, a haunting prediction from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. There may be nearly 195,000 total deaths due to coronavirus by September 12th in the U.S. That's just about three weeks from now. Contributing to the case count, especially in rural areas, what are called super-spreading events. An Emory University study of Georgia found that mass gatherings are playing a key role in spreading the virus in rural areas, especially mass gatherings such as the one in South Dakota where a motorcycle rally earlier this month has led to at least seven new cases and spread into the next state over, Nebraska. We just learned a tattoo artist working that day has tested positive for COVID-19. Joining me now to discuss this and much more, Dr. Gene Marazzo, the Director of Infectious Disease at University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, Dr. Marazzo, thanks so much for joining us. First, what's your reaction to this CDC prediction of 195,000 deaths in total by uh, just three weeks from now? Yeah, thanks, Jake. Good to be here as always. Uh, My reaction is, of course, uh, sadness because... uh, Remember, the deaths represent individuals, as I know you know, and it's every single death is really a tragedy that we would have liked to have prevented. I think that it's a realistic prediction based on the accrual of deaths that we have seen over the last month or so. The situation with the death prediction is interesting. As you know, and as Dr. Redfield emphasized, it really peaks about three weeks, two to three weeks after you start seeing the correlated peak in the number of cases. So we've pretty predictably been seeing this increase in deaths about that time after. So if you factor in the fact that we are seeing a decline in the number of cases, that number is probably a best case scenario, which is a really terrifying thing, but probably at least likely to be true. I don't want to get you involved in politics, but uh, Joe Biden yesterday talking about the uh, the coronavirus pandemic said it didn't have to be this way. Every health expert I've talked to has said the same thing. It didn't have to be this way. Do you agree? I do agree. Um, And I think um, the number of parameters that we could have done better um, are numerous. I mean, it's always in medicine, we say the best diagnostic tool is the retrospectoscope, where you go back like a Monday morning quarterback is a sports analogy and you say what you could have done. These are things that, um, it's not, in retrospect, it's things that we were really clamoring for and begging for all along. And they included um, adequate access to widespread diagnostic testing. We know the debacle that um, that entailed. That didn't happen early enough. 
And then most critically, we needed a coordinated national plan, and we still need a coordinated national plan. But as you know, we've got states making their own plans. We've got university, college campuses making their own plans. And so with that, we just have a whole diversity of approaches and the situation where you've got a state like Georgia that is really having a very hard time um, and other states doing very well. So that did not need to be the case, especially when you look at other countries, as we've discussed, yeah. that have done very well. So regarding this Emory study, how big are these events that should be avoided? How many people, what kinds of events? So it depends. Um, to be safest, you probably should be less than 10. Less than 25 is great and less than 50 is absolute. So when you look at the super spreading events, they've been things like funerals, barbecues, uh, church services, revival services. You mentioned the Sturgis motorcycle rally, which was a very big event and people were very clearly not wearing masks in some of those photographs. So, um, you know, the smaller, the better. But the key is, again, social distancing combined with the barriers of masks. So if you have 10 people having a driveway happy hour and you're sitting six feet apart all around, it's probably okay, especially if you're outside. If you have that number of people mingling at a buffet table where you're sharing utensils to get food and all that sort of thing, that's gonna be a lot more problematic. So those are some general numbers, but the context is really important. Would standing in line to vote on election day be an example of a potential super spreader event? It could be unless you followed the precautions that I've seen many places using, and those might include standing six feet apart, and it certainly could include masks. So if you combine some measure of that six feet distance, ideally, and that may be tough in some places where you don't have the physical space to create that kind of line, um, but if you uh, augment that with consistent mask wearing, that actually can be very safe. We have not heard of any infections that have been acquired because of these types of events. So that's really a good thing. Another place we're seeing mass gatherings, colleges and universities, Syracuse mm -hmm. just uh, suspended uh, 23 students for ignoring the college's guidelines. Um, an excerpt uh, of a letter from the vice chancellor to the student body reads, quote, the students who gathered on the quad last night may have done damage enough to shut down campus, including residence halls and in-person learning, before the academic semester even begins. Um, these were students outside, as I understand it. Um, should students that are back on college campuses not socialize in any way, or if they do, how do they do it? Right. So a couple of things. I do not think we should outlaw socialization. The whole point of getting back on campus is recognizing that people really need their lifetime milestones. I mean, we've had now six, seven months of kids missing really important milestones, whether it's graduations or proms or their first day at school, whatever that is. So to the extent that we can do this safely, I do really respect the efforts to do that. What does safely mean? It means, again, going back to those numbers we just talked about for gatherings. So safe is not being in a bar with 50 people and drinking on top of not wearing masks. Safes might be getting together with people at a place where there are 10 of you, you're wearing masks and you're being very cautious. The other thing is the kids who were outside not wearing masks, we have no idea when they acquired those infections. So I worry a little bit about pointing blame at people when we really don't understand the context of how these things happen. So we have some work to do to figure this out, but I do think we will get there. Dr. G. Marazzo, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it.
My pleasure. Thank you. Did Joe Biden slam the door on one of President Trump's favorite lines of attack? How his speech could theoretically change this race and, and how Trump plans to counterattack? That's next. Give people light. In our 2020 lead today, the now official Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, is receiving widespread praise for his speech last night from even some members of the conservative media. Of course, the Trump campaign had made what seems a strategic blunder in setting the bar for Mr. Biden quite low. CNN's MJ Lee looks now at how Biden's speech could change his campaign approach and what it might mean for the president when it's his turn to take the stage next week. So it's a great honor and humility. I accept this nomination for president of the United States of America. With these words, Joe Biden kicking off the final 74-day sprint to Election Day. But don't expect campaign rallies anytime soon. A senior campaign aide telling CNN it's unclear whether Biden will campaign in person this fall because of the pandemic, but saying they have, quote, new confidence they can reach out to voters differently, including next week during the Republican convention. The Republican convention next week will be marked by chaos, chaos, chaos. Last night, Biden giving the biggest speech of his political career with a somber warning to the nation about the current occupant of the White House. The current president has cloaked American darkness for much too long. Too much anger, too much fear, too much division. And promising to guide the nation out of that darkness. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together and make no mistake. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. The former vice president making a broad appeal to non-traditional Democratic voters, saying it is time to rise above partisan politics. I'll work hard for those who didn't support me, as hard for them as I did for those who did vote for me. This is not a partisan moment. This must be an American moment. The final night of the convention featuring poignant tributes to Biden's character, including from 13-year-old Braden Harrington, who connected with Biden on the campaign trail about a challenge they've both confronted, their stutter. Joe Biden made me more confident about something that's bothered me my whole life. Joe Biden cared. Imagine what he could do for all of us. Capping off an unprecedented, almost entirely virtual convention amid a global pandemic. Fireworks lighting up the sky above a parking lot in Wilmington, Delaware, for a socially distanced celebration. And Jake, you heard there the chairman of the DNC predicting chaos at next week's Republican National Convention. And as Republicans take their turn next week, both the DNC and the Biden campaign are trying to break through with some counter-programming, which isn't going to be easy. They are going to be releasing TV and digital ads. And each day of the convention, they want to try to highlight a crisis under the Trump administration. They will, of course, also be using some high-profile Democratic surrogates like Nancy Pelosi, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, uh, but as of right now, uh, Democrats say that we there are no plans right now for either Joe Biden or Kamala Harris to take part in any of that counter-programming. Jake. All right, MJ Lee, thank you so much. More in our 2020 lead. While Biden is getting bipartisan praise, really, for his speech last night, President Trump is slamming the Democratic National Convention as the darkest and gloomiest convention 
in history. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins me now. And Caitlin, Democrats made a key part of their convention message the notion that President Trump is discouraging voting, especially voting by mail. And now the president is giving them more ammunition. He told Hannity he's going to send sheriffs and law enforcement to polling places on Election Day. Yeah, they're accusing him of trying to really undermine the election by sowing all that doubt about mail-in voting. And then when he was asked last night about how he's going to verify that voters are who they are, he was talking about sending sheriffs and law enforcement and U.S. attorneys to polling places on Election Day, something that we should note he likely does not have the authority to do because federal law makes it illegal to try to intimidate voters at polling places. But it also makes it illegal, uh, it prohibits federal or civil, or excuse me, civil or military federal officials from sending armed men to polling places. So the president is saying that it's, it's something he actually said in 2016 as well. It's not likely he can do that. But one thing that the Trump campaign is doing is trying to send thousands of these election monitors, these people to battleground states for election day, because, you know, the president has been making this effort overall to say that there is going to be some kind of fraud, that it could be a rigged election. So it's really been this whole of Trump campaign approach to try to sow this down about the results on election day. The president uh, criticized the speeches at the DNC for a whole host of reasons, but one of the reasons was that many of them were on tape. They were not live. Are, are the plans right now for the Republican National Convention to be mostly live? The primetime speeches will be mostly live based on what we heard from campaign sources, people who are working on this, because the president has been watching it closely at night, you know, the primetime hours when you're seeing the big name speakers. And he says he does not like how it's taped. Michelle Obama has been on the receiving end of that criticism from the president, but his aides agree. They've been trying to watch and learn from the DNC and see what they can do to improve their convention next week. And one thing has been they do not want a lot of taped programming because they think it looks deflated or flat and doesn't have this reaction. But what they're weighing with that is if they are doing these live speeches, what's the audience reaction going to look like? And that's why they have some of these events that next week are going to be outside when you see these people speaking. The First Lady Melania Trump is going to be speaking from the Rose Garden. We know the Vice President Mike Pence is going to be speaking from Fort McHenry. And then, of course, President Trump will be introduced by Ivanka Trump next Thursday. And that's going to be on the South Lawn here at the White House. And we are expecting an audience to be there outdoors. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks. The president uh, has a point about that. I mean, live programming does have more of an energy, but taped programming is a lot easier to control. Next week, the Republican National Convention dominates primetime. Watch all the big moments right here on CNN. Our special coverage begins Monday night at 7 o'clock Eastern. With the pandemic playing out on his watch, the new warning to President Trump and all leaders as the world waits and waits and waits for a vaccine. Staying with our health lead, uh, there will soon be new guidance on when and where children should wear masks, released by the World Health Organization and UNICEF. The guidance will be broken down by age group. There will be five and under, six to 11, and 12 and over. Now, that announcement will come as we learn a six-year-old has died in Florida from the virus, the youngest person to die in that state. Joining me now, CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, the state's health department in Florida does not know how this six-year-old contracted the virus, and we don't know if she had any underlying right. health conditions. Why do you think there's still so much we don't know about how the virus affects kids? 
Well, you know, the, the largest study that we've been able to find really was out of China very early on in this pandemic, when I think uh, at that point kids were still out and about and, and easier to study. That was some 2,000 children uh, that, were, that were part of that study. But since then, Jake, I really, you know, since March, uh, kids really have been mostly at home. So they haven't been, you know, having close contacts with people, haven't been at, at greater risk of, of contracting the virus. In fact, the South Korea study, which everyone always cites, if you look closely at it, there's only 57 children out of the thousands of people in that study who were under the age of nine. What I think we know to be true is that kids are still less likely to get sick from that. That, that data has held up seemingly from the original China data. But I think it's becoming more and more clear that kids can transmit this virus. They can spread it. We don't know how much, but they certainly can spread it. And as more kids get it, even if it's rare that they get very sick, you are going to see more tragic stories like what happened to the six-year-old in Florida. Uh, the numbers are low, but they're going to go up as the, as the overall numbers go up. European researchers are, are highlighting the benefits of a mandatory mask wearing policy. They say it not only reduces the stigma, but it leads to more protective behaviors, physical distancing, hand washing and more. How much of a difference could this make theoretically in the U.S., especially when we've heard from small business owners yeah. who, who really hesitate to enforce mask rules if there is not a mandate in the state? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question because culturally, you know, it, it may be very different here in the United States versus what they found in Germany. I, I did find this study really interesting. We can show you some of the specific results, but basically they studied 1,000 people a week over seven weeks, so 7,000 people. This is going back to May. And what they found is the simple act of putting on a mask has the benefit of, of obviously the mask, but, but take a look here, J Jake. You put on a mask and, and your people are, you know, 2.7 to 7.7 times more likely to be hand washing up to 20 times more likely to, av to be avoiding handshakes, up to 13 times more likely to be physically distancing. It's this idea that uh, just, you know, almost on a psychological level, once you put on the mask, you start to behave differently. You are less likely to spread the virus. We've shown the studies on that. Probably spreading a virus goes down sixfold, but all these other behaviors improve as well, as you mentioned. I don't know if, if it translates here in, in the United States. I think it does uh, because people who are going to wear masks are probably more likely to engage in those other healthy behaviors. But I think to your point, Jake, it counts on everyone else doing it also. And, and, and that part's not clear. Today, the uh, CDC highlighted Rhode Island is having success at, at reopening child care centers. The CDC says health authorities in that state were quick to identify cases, to contact trace, to quarantine anyone exposed. Is that enough, do you think, uh, to prove that there is definitively a, a way to safely reopen schools and daycare centers right now? I, I think there's a way to do it as, as safely as possible, but I don't know if you could ever say that it's going to be safe because the virus is still spreading. It's still very contagious. I'll show you what happened in Rhode Island specifically. You can look at the numbers. And as you look at this, you know, you, you, you keep in mind that Rhode Island's positivity rate is about two and a half percent. OK, so they have a that basically suggests that they are doing plenty of testing out there already. But, you know, they did all the things that you'd expect, right? Face masks, distancing, proper ventilation. They had physical distancing in terms of modified classroom layouts, all of that. But look at that bottom line. They had a plan for positive cases, right? Uh, you you got to ask your own school district, what is your plan if you have a certain number of positive cases? That should be very transparent. And what are you going to do with people at that point? How are they going to be tested and traced? It has repercussions. So in Rhode Island, it's working well. But they also have more than 800 people who are currently in quarantine as a result of these child care situations also. So they quickly identify people. But that, that might mean, Jake, if you're doing it properly, a lot of people go into quarantine also. The numbers stay down, 
but you know the the ability to actually be in in, in childcare or schools or whatever, the ability to do that goes down as well. Just imagine if we could test teachers and students the same way that we test NBA players and White House officials. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks as always. One witness said it was like a tornado 70 miles across. Why the White House's response to the storm could or make or break the president's chance in a key battleground state. In our national lead today, 12,000 customers remain without power more than 10 days after a derecho hit Iowa. The state remains reeling from a devastating storm that ravaged Iowa with hurricane-force winds ripping up everything in its path. On Tuesday, President Trump visited the state that he won by almost 10 points in 2016. We've come through for you, and we will always come through for Iowa. But as CNN's Ryan Young reports for us now, not every Iowan is feeling the love from Trump this time around, and many say the federal help they get for the storm could directly impact their vote. Unfortunately, the ear is on the part of the stock that's dead. A massive windstorm's destruction still seen all over Steve Swinka's cornfield. Nearly two weeks after it swept across Iowa with 100-mile-an-hour winds. Wow. It just kept going, and, you know, 45 minutes into it, it's still blowing, and we're seeing the trees and the limbs, and, of course, the power's off. In Cedar Rapids, one of the hardest-hit cities, more than 800 buildings suffered some sort of partial collapse. More than 20 school buildings damaged. It was like the whole storm that was 70 miles across was a tornado, and I've never seen anything like it. Nikki Wims works at a Cedar Rapids bar. We just rebuilt from the flood of 08, and now we're going to be doing it all over again with no support. President Trump visited Iowa Tuesday, one day after signing a major disaster declaration. But the $45 million in aid only covers a portion of the almost $4 billion Republican Governor Kim Reynolds requested. But the president also approved additional funding for the Cedar Rapids area Thursday, according to Governor Reynolds' office. Not nearly enough, says Wims. He came by what, for a picture, for a photo op at the Cedar Rapids airport? No. I want to see boots on the ground. Like, you know, people, he needed to see this. Other Iowans in the bar are pleased with the president's support. Brian Reeves says Trump can count on his vote. I really think he means well. I mean, there's some things I wish he would, you know, some of his tweets and stuff like that. I, you know, he's he's not a politician. I mean, he never was, and he's always admitted that he's never been a politician. So I think deep inside, I think he's doing what he thinks he needs to do to help. A Monmouth University poll taken one week before the storm showed Trump leading Biden 48% to 45% within the margin of error. Losing Iowa's six electoral votes may not cost Trump the election, but the voter sentiment in the red-leaning state may signal trouble for Trump and other key states on election night. There is this conversation that Iowa may be a swing state. Do you buy that, or what do you think is going to happen? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. This is, I mean, I I work in a bar. I talk to people of all walks of life, all different political, religious backgrounds, and I've heard people, Republicans even saying, I had a guy on the patio just yesterday say, listen, Nikki, I have always voted Republican. This will be the first time that I don't. Come on, boys. Back on Steve Swinker's farm, the fourth-generation farmer says he's still on the fence about who he'll vote for as he waits to see how the federal and state assistance will help farmers pick up the pieces. I guess I have to believe that our elected officials will get their heads together and and get us some help uh, in some way. Jake, as you know, in 2008 and 2012, President Obama was able to win Iowa. But in 2016, 
President Trump was able to flip 31 counties. Of course, everyone will be looking again to see exactly what happened. A lot of these areas are really damaged. Farmers looking for help. Billions of dollars of losses. Jake. All right, Ryan Young from the Midwest. Thank you so much. Feeling isolated during the pandemic? Feeling soft because your gym is closed? Today's CNN Hero is trying to help people deal with all of that. A personal trainer with special insight into feeling locked up. I spent close to 31 months in solitary confinement. I would spend half a day doing certain exercises to keep my blood moving through my body, keep my body strong, you know. We got the moms on deck. The moms are getting it in this morning. I started a second youth foundation. We have formerly incarcerated men and women. They get certified and they get provided job placement. Not one has reoffended. People won't reoffend as long as they're provided livable wages. Squat all the way down. If I can help other people become successful, that means a lot of families were fed. That means success to me. We all deserve a second chance. Anderson Cooper shares the full story about Hector's work at CNNHeroes.com. Check it out. The actions of some first-year college students that one university is describing as selfish. That's next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 